These guys, there they are, they're war crimes, you know them. Um, they were biblical in number. The death toll that these men caused was sickening to the world. These were the men, they were the heads of the Nazi regime. This is them being tried at Nuremberg 1946. But in the 1930s, that was essentially the time that these men formulated who they were. It was, they were, their minds were captivated. Their minds were so important in this. They were captivated by the philosophy of the Nazi regime, of Aryan supremacy. And with that mindset, they waged war against the world. But in the prison in 1946, they met a man called Henry Garrett. You can't really see him very well there. He was an American army chaplain. Through hearing the gospel that he proclaimed to those 15 men imprisoned in Nuremberg, Henry Grech, in his biography, claimed that and understood that eight of those men tried at Nuremberg knew that they would never be condemned by God for their crimes. They trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Saviour. He had saved them from the eternal justice that they deserved. And their minds, critically, had been transformed in the last days of their earthly lives. They were no longer disciples of Hitler. They were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once they were God-haters. And the extraordinary truth that we're going to find more at today is that now, no longer God-haters, they have actually God within them by his Spirit. Now, I hope the contrast of those men, if you like, from genocidal warriors to repentant and humble followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, provides, if you like, a vivid picture of what we see around us every day. There are those who belong to Christ and who have the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And there are those who do not belong to Christ and do not have the Spirit of God in their hearts. When we walk down the busy streets of London, you'll see this picture every day, I'm sure many of you. As you squash onto the trains, as you um, look around your workplace, as you go home this evening and watch people milling around in Southfields and Wimbledon Park and Ellsfield, there seems very little visible contrast between all of us. But some here, and thousands out there, millions in this great city, and billions around the world face exactly the same predicament that all of those Nazi regime leaders were facing before they trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. That is, they were, many people around us are, by nature, in their minds, and then through their lives, hostile to God, not knowing the Spirit of God in their hearts. But you see, eight of those men in Nuremberg in 1946, could say with confidence, as we saw last week in verse 1, have a look at it, down it if you can, if you can, now. They could say with confidence, there is now no condemnation for me. Because I'm in Christ. I've trusted Christ. Like Romans is a book has been leading the whole way to this point. Hence the, the word therefore in verse 1. You see it there? Ash very helpfully explained that last week. Do listen to that uh, talk. Then he explained that Romans uh, 8, then verse 2 to 4 is, if you like, an explanation of verse 1. If we trust Christ, we will never be condemned by God for anything that we've thought, said and done. We are saved, as it says, verse 2. We're saved from the law of sin and death. 
That is, we do not need to make ourselves right before God following a bunch of rules. Rather, it is only, as Paul has been at pains to kind of spell out the whole way through Romans, it is only through Christ's perfect life and his substitutionary death for those who then put their trust in his life and death, they will be saved for an eternal paradise with him. And the life now with the Spirit in us. Therefore, you see, the Christian life, again, as Paul has been pointing out the whole way through Romans, is a responsive life. It is a life living in response to what Christ has done for us. Not us trying to earn our way to heaven, but responding to the person who has earned us a place in heaven. He describes that life of a Christian as one that lives or walks according to the Spirit. In verse 4, as we saw at the end of last week, not according to the sinful nature. So as Christians, as we finished last week, we saw that we're to live according to the Spirit. Our nature, essentially, has changed. It has been transformed by Christ's work. How can we be assured that this is true? Well, because our nature determines our minds. And our mind will determine our life, our action. And that is what we will see today and what we'll see next week as well. Paul in these next few verses, up really up to verse 18, spells out what this living according to the Spirit looks like. Essentially, he spells out what it is to be a Christian. It's pretty helpful, isn't it? If you want to book a chapter about assurance, this is the one if you're a Christian. It shows you what an authentic Christian looks like. So he shows you, uh, we'll look at it this week, verse 5 to 8, that a new uh, person living according to the Spirit will have a new mindset, a new way of thinking. Verse 9 to 11, there'll be a new sense of life, both now, but also anticipating the life to come. And next week we'll see, verse 12 to 13, uh, the life according to the Spirit will also give a new sense of obligation. It's interesting that. An obligation to put to death things of our flesh, our, our kind of sinful nature, and feed the Spirit. It's a real interesting thing that we're going to look next week, because our freedom, you see, in Christ brings an obligation. But that obligation is key to our freedom. It's a brilliant passage next week. Come back. Lastly, we'll see next week that it brings a new identity. That is, we're adopted sons. And that will take us up to verse 18. Let's dive into our passage, though, now, if we can, and begin looking at how the mind determines how we live. I put it on your, uh, your sheets there. It's up on the screen as well. See, if you were to just look down, I would say, what's this whole passage about? And you very simply said, well, what's the word that kind of crops up the most? You'd probably say spirit or mind, wouldn't you? If you have a look down, it's there everywhere. See, critical to this whole passage is the mind. But behind that is the nature that, if you like, feeds the mind, that directs it. And Paul, what he does in these first couple of verses, verse 5 and 6, he kind of does a contrast and compare between the nature and the mind of the life and life of someone with the Spirit and then someone without. The nature is fundamental to both. One scholar put it this way. We think like we do because we are like we are. Without God, without the Spirit in our hearts, we're driven by just you know, gut instincts, human desires. We all know what that feels like, don't we? We pander to what feels good to us right now or anything that's self-centered, really. It's not all-consuming. 
You know, not every person in this world does every action for selfish reasons. But it's, in a sense, what he's speaking of here is a preoccupation. What their mind is set on. Is it for themselves, for their pleasure? And the questions, I guess, that are raised from this for us today would be something like this. What is the thing that preoccupies you? What is the, uh, the concern that engrosses you week in, week out? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? I guess that will indicate to some degree what your heart and mind are set on. One of uh, my college uh, lecturers, this, it shows you how old I am. He, he used an illustration like this. He wishes to say, what is the tape that plays in your mind? That's how old he was, tape. My boys he wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about. But, you know, what is the MP3? Or, you know, what's the track that is going in your mind the whole time? If what you hear is something like this, oh, you know, I know what God says, but on that particular issue in life, I, I kind of just ignore it. I don't think it's too important. You know, sin is a bit of fun. And, and serving God, seeming to go what the Bible says the whole time, that looks a bit dull and a bit boring. If that's the kind of thing that's going on in your heart and mind, then you kind of got to ask yourself, haven't you? What, what's your mind set on? What's the preoccupation of your mind? And notice it is a, a question of preoccupation, not of perfection. That is, if the track of your mind is something like, hey, I recognise sin is really hard and I'm fighting against it. And I know it's going to be a struggle and I keep messing up, but I really want to keep going. I really want to honour Christ with my life. Then please know that your mind is set or preoccupied on what the Spirit desires. Because that's the same battle that Paul describes the chapter before, in chapter 7. Is your mind set on what God wants? Expressed through his word, the Bible, or is it set on what you want? If you know the struggle, then know that you walk, you live with the Spirit inside you. Your nature is that of the Spirit. So your mind and therefore the, the life that responds to that mindset is probably one of the best indicators that it, whether you have Christ in you by His Spirit or not. And therefore, I'm going to say this a number of times throughout today. It is simple. These words will either act, and I will say them, I hope, in a very gentle way. They are a gentle warning, but a stark warning, if you do not have the Spirit of God in your hearts. But they should also act, for anyone who here is a Christian, as really wonderful comfort and assurance. The mind determines how we live. Secondly, the mind determines our ends. See, our natures whether sinful or spirit-filled, determine our mind. And that mindset, Paul goes on to show us, reaps an eternal consequence. Now, again, I, I, I apologise. Paul doesn't make this very palatable. There's a, there is a stark contrast being made here. The mind of someone who's preoccupied with themselves and not Christ, not struggling to battle against sin in their lives, well... Look at the end of verse 6. Paul says it very clearly. It's death. Ignoring God and his ways will lead to an eternal spiritual death. If you alienate God in your mind now, 
in a continued and persistent way that will lead to an eternal, continued and persistent death. Look at the contrast. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. If you're preoccupied with pleasing God, if your mind is directed by the Spirit as you read the Word of God, what's the eternal outcome? It's eternal life and eternal peace. Does it get any better? No. Life now with the assurance of life to come and reconciliation with God so there will be no condemnation, verse 1. But notice the control of verse 6. Why don't you have a look down there? You see, the word used in the English there is controlled. And essentially means to submit yourself to, to it. So even when the Bible says tough things, of which it does, given the culture we live in, we all know the pressures we face, don't we? The Bible says some difficult things. But to have one's mind controlled by the Spirit as you work in the office and you just want to fly off at this incompetent person that you've been working with and you want to pin it. No. It is to submit to the Spirit as it works through the Word. As you control your anger and you love them sacrificially. Do you see how Paul shows that our nature, our mind and our life and our eternities, are they're all interlinked. You can't just say, well, I like what I'm getting here in this part of verse 6, but I think I'm going to just buy myself out of that section, thank you very much. Because I don't like what the Word of God says about that area of my life. And I, yeah, I kind of think I'll just, I'll take that aside. I'll just do things my own way in that bit. No, you can't buy out of one. Forgetting God, ignoring God, for what that will expose is a nature, a mind that is hostile to God and not controlled by the Spirit. And Paul's very clear. The end of verse 6, it leads to death, not life and peace. And again, let me state this. For many of us gathered here today, we should walk out with a spring in our step. These are great words of comfort and assurance. You're a Christian. You have the Spirit of God in your hearts. But for some, maybe, these will be a warning. So I say that lovingly, please be warned. One of the men that I pictured at the beginning was a man called a name called Hermann Goering. He was the head of the Luftwaffe in charge of bombing us in the Battle of Britain in 1940 and 41. He clearly did not heed the warnings as Henry Correct uh, taught him the Bible again and again. And hours before his death, having denied the fundamentals of the Christian faith, Goering had the tenacity to ask Henry Correct, this chaplain. Uh, he said, uh, Goering asked, could I share the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper with you? This is why I love Henry Greck so much. This is how he responded to Hermann Goering. I cannot give you the Lord's Supper because you deny the very Christ who instituted the sacrament. That is the symbol, if you like. You do not have faith in Christ and have not accepted him as your saviour. Therefore, you are not a Christian. And as a Christian pastor, I cannot commune or share with you and do you know how Hermann Goering responded? He just said, I'll take my chances. 
I'll take my chances. And can I lovingly say to some of you, and you will know people like this, I'm sure, some of my friends are just living the life and they, they love it and they're just saying, I know what you're thinking, I know what you say about Jesus, but I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to take my chances. And if that is you, look at Romans 8 verse 6. The mind of a sinful man is death. But what a contrast for later that night uh, of these men in Nuremberg. Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was the uh, foreign minister for Hitler, the Nazi philosopher, he stood on the scaffolds uh, seconds before his death. um, And he calmly said this to then his friend, Henry Gorek, the chaplain. He said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. He turned to Henry Gregg, the chaplain, and he said, I'll see you again. The black hood was placed over his face, the 13-coiled noose around his neck, and he dropped through a trap door, receiving the justice, the right justice, for his crimes in this life, but entered into an eternity with Christ, innocent and free. My question to you is this, which nature, if you like, describes you? What is your mind set on, preoccupied with? One nature, as we've seen, clearly kind of leads uh, uh, to a mind that pleases God and therefore eternal life and peace. And by contrast, one nature leads to a mind that is set to please yourself, that leads to a spiritual and eternal death. Now Paul introduces these contrasts between the one who has life with the spirit inside and the one without. And now what he's going to do in these following verses is going to explore those things further in more detail. We're going to quickly run through them. Again, the contrast is stark. There's warning as well. But for the Christian, immense assurance. But firstly, what he does to contrast with the spirit-filled mind, which he's going to look at in later verses, he looks at the sinful mind. The one who says, hey, it's all about me, what I want. Let's look at verse 7 and 8 again. Just cast your eyes down if you possibly can. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So here we are looking at the, the sinful mind here. And he tells us three things very quickly. I'm going to run through them very fast about the sinful mind. Firstly, the sinful mind, he says it's hostile to God there. And I've mentioned this before, and you can describe it in numbers of ways. But you know, when we think of hostile, we think of that kind of hot, rebellious way against God. No, God, I'm not going to do your thing. I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to live like this, and so on. But that doesn't describe most of my friends. They are just very British, very coolly indifferent towards God. They'll tip their cap at Christmas at him, but that's it. They just want to please themselves the rest of the time. Fundamental to both of those ways, though, is is an attitude that is rebellious against God. It's saying, God, I'll do my own thing, thanks. Whether it's against the name of God, the will of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God, the word of God, his son, his spirit... The antagonistic sinful mind will long to take glory from God and place it on another or themselves. The agnostic, the atheist, the pluralist, the communist, the 
kind and gentle folk of any other religion, they all, in their particular ways, their cultures and their personalities, are fundamentally hostile to God. The sinful mind is hostile to God. And consequently, we see, second point there, is unable to submit to God's law. See, in contrast to the Christian, who back in chapter 7, verse 22, uh, if you want to look at that, delights in the law of God to live his way. The sinful mind, the sinful nature, drives the mind, is unable to submit, which kind of makes sense of the inability of the sinful mind to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law that we saw back in verse 3. But the root of the problem, the core of all of this, which, again, this is not me, this is hard for me to say, but this is Paul, God speaking through Paul. The root of the problem is is that the sinful mind is controlled by the sinful nature that we see in verse 8. The irony is that many ignore God and new life with the Spirit because they believe that life without God offers them a bit more fun. That's what most of my mates would say. I guess yours too. They'd offer them a bit, a bit more freedom. If I, if I go with God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to curtail all my fun. But have you ever noticed that there's control both ways? That is, you're either controlled by the sinful nature, not that my friends would ever describe it in that way, and I'm sure yours wouldn't either. You know, they're either controlled by themselves, literally the word there is the flesh, sarked in the, in the original, or by God through his spirit and his word. That's the choice. You're controlled by one or the other. And once again, it comes back to the fundamentals, our natures. Whether you are with or without God will determine all things. Our minds, our lives, and what we are controlled by. And regarding control, we have to ask ourselves again, what is the thing, what's the track that we're listening to in our minds? The one that says, oh, go on, it'll kind of feel all right. I know what God says, but let me do my things my own way. Or are you controlled by the one that says, I know what God says, and I want to honour him, because I know he knows best for me, and it's for my good, and it will please him. The most shocking comment is left by Paul, to last, the sinful mind who simply says, cannot please God. Someone cannot please God because they can't live his way. That is, submit to him and his law. And Paul's point, both to the Jews who wanted to reinstate the law and to us, is this. It's not in that keeping the law as much as we possibly can will please God. He knows he can't be done in any of us. Our standards before our holy and perfect God, we're never going to get the mark, are we? No, what God wants is a voluntary dedication of you. A sacrificial service in response to all that he's done. Done not in kind of a cowering kind of fear, but in a joyful response to Christ. Setting us free from the law of sin and death, as he said. For an eternal freedom with him. The sinful mind cannot please God. And if God is not pleased, well, it means he cannot look on that person favorably, both now and for eternity. Look, if your nature is predominantly sinful, rebelling against God, delighting in that and saying, hey, I don't want to go your way, God, thank you. 
I'll do things my own way. Then know that you cannot please God. Now and eternally. You need a nature change, essentially. And so Paul now offers the contrast. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome and personally and very lovingly is reassuring them here in these verses. Notice the shift, if you can, just purely grammatical shift here. Notice the third person plural shift to the second person. Now he addresses you in verse uh, 9 onwards. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. So we get to our second point. It's quicker, don't panic. The mindset on what the Spirit desires. And we see a few things here again. He again addresses our nature. He first says, is controlled by the Spirit. Literally, it might read something like this. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. It's kind of a double whammy that he's talking about here. So as a Christian, if you are a Christian here today, you are someone who by faith, you have trusted in Jesus' death on the cross that has borne the punishment that your sin deserves. As a Christian, you have a personal relationship with God through his spirit. That is, to use Paul's phrase here, you are in the spirit. That's one part of the equation. But also, Paul is saying here, no, the spirit lives in you. There's a double whammy going on there. And our translation uses the term controlled by the spirit here as our relationship with God. And many Christians here, you'll recognize this. Our relationship with God and the fact that God dwells in our hearts by the spirit acts as a control, doesn't it? On our lives. I know, you know, as Christians, sometimes you can get slightly annoyed by that, can't you? And you know the Spirit is kind of speaking to you in your heart. You go, well, I want to do that. And he says, no. And you can get slightly frustrated as he convinces you to go God's way. But rather than be annoyed by that, we should be utterly rejoicing that God, by his Spirit, influences us, brings about godliness in our lives, in control of us, in a sense, for his glory as we submit ourselves to his word. If you know that influence, then know, if you like, it's like a wonderful hallmark in your life of God in you. It's essentially a kind of sign of authenticity. See, whether it's the money in your wallet or the the watch on your wrist or the clothing that you're wearing, I guess many of the items that many of us have will have logos on, won't they? And if you like, that logo is a symbol of the authentic kind of part of being of that company. Now, you want to know if you're fake or real as a Christian today? You're real if you know that settled, permanent, penetrative control of God's Spirit within you. Don't get hung up on the terminology. Look at it all. You know, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit in us. Paul is just showing there, if you like, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, though they are kind of co-eternal and eternally distinct and all of those things, they share the same kind of divine essence, all of those big, big things that you can think of. The point is, gloriously, that the Godhead is in you by a Spirit. If so, you're the real thing. Look at that verse, the end of verse 9. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. I love this verse. Shall I tell you why? 
I've had too many of my friends in the past, and maybe you've got friends like this too, who have, have approached me and said something like this. You're not a real Christian, Andy, because you haven't experienced what I've experienced with a particular spiritual gift. Many often, my friends will talk about you know, speaking in tongues, which is mentioned twice in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And maybe you've been to those kind of churches. I used to work in a church like that, and the pressure is on all the time for you to experience a kind of a second blessing, a second portion of God's Spirit, that He's going to do something in you, that, and you're all going to look the same, exercising all of this, this one particular gift. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we can all do with knowing more acutely the work of the Spirit in our lives. As struggling sinners, and that's all of us here, we all need to be more aware of what God wants through his spirit and more open to following him through his word. But if someone says to you, oh, you know, you haven't got the spirit in you because you don't display a particular gift or act in a particular way in your church, then I would say very graciously, point them to this verse. Romans 8, chapter nine, verse 9. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. You see, either they're saying you're not a Christian at all, or what they're saying is utter rubbish. If Christ is in you by his spirit, you belong to him permanently. There's no kind of sense of here, oh, and you need to add a bit later. If you know the influence of the spirit in your lives, as you read God's word, and you know the encouragement of the Spirit to follow his word. As you go out with drinks with your friends and you hear God's Spirit promoting your conscience uh, to respond in a Christ-like way in those situations. If you know that, you have God's Spirit in you. And you belong to Christ for eternity. If you want to know that if the, the £20 note in your wallet is a fake, what do you do? You kind of hold it up to your light, don't you? Various things. You've got to see various bits, you know, the watermarks and so on. If you want to know whether your faith is fake or not, you hold yourself up to the light of God's word. And you ask yourself, is the spirit of God in your hearts? What is the track you listen to? If you have the spirit, then what? Verse 10 If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of your sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's made alive by the Spirit. Now, we all face death, Christians uh, or not, but Christians gloriously and undeservedly have literally, the word there is quickened, been made alive because of Christ's righteousness that's been given to us through that swap that happens on the cross. When Christ died... Get this if you don't get anything today. It says in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 5, his righteousness, his perfect life can be through faith imputed, the word is, or credited to you. You are clothed, if you like, in his perfect life. It not only secures our eternity, but then it enables us to live for Christ, which is what Paul is pointing to us here. We become alive, quickened to our responsibilities as those who have been saved. If Christ is in us by his spirit, we are alive eternally for him. But Paul goes on, last verse, verse 11. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You see, the glorious truth here is that the mindset on what the spirit desires, we lastly we see, is raised by the spirit. See, if God's spirit is within you today, then death, even if it happens today, is not the end. Joachim von Ribbentrop knew this as he was hung in 1946 for his terrible crimes against humanity. And though his body was dead at that moment, he was more alive than ever before as he enjoyed eternity, the beginning of it, with God. See, the logic, just go through verse 11 with me. The logic of it is really, really simple. If God has raised Jesus from the dead, historical fact, objective truth. Point two, he will also raise believers from the dead, as Jesus testified for those with faith. Thirdly, how is he going to do that? He'll do that through the power of his spirits. That's how the logic runs throughout the verse. God gives us new life Through his spirit. If he lives in us, that is, if our nature is that of the spirit, we should see and know his work now. We have new life of the spirit today, but moreover, we have that new perspective because our horizon is not the grave. Our horizon is eternal. Von Ribbentrop said with complete assurance to the chaplain correct before he's he's hung, I'll see you again. Why? Because he knew utter certainty in the gospel with the spirit of God in his heart. He knew new life and peace. He knew the assurance that as verse 11 says, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Let me conclude with this if I can. When the great uh, American evangelist D.L. Moody became a Christian, when the Spirit of God entered his heart, he described it like this. These are the most amazing words. And I hope that you can testify to this too. He said this, It was like I was in a new world. The next morning the sun shone brighter. The birds, they sang sweeter. The old elms waved their branches for joy and all of nature was at peace. Life in Christ, he said, is an abundant life. You see, when we have the spirit of Christ in our hearts, he gives us a new sense of life now. We see it in all of its richness and its color because we see it as we should see it, as children of the creator but as we saw in verse 10 and 11, we get this immense and glorious sense of the, of the eternal life too. One scholar put it this way. Where before life was monochrome, it is now gloriously polychrome in Christ. Let's pray that that is true. Heavenly Father, I guess most of all, we we must pray uh, that the Spirit is in each of us as a sign and a down payment of 
the salvation that you've brought us in Christ. Perhaps for one or two here that that is not the truth. Please may they heed and consider these gentle and loving warnings that Paul uh, calls us to see in this, in this chapter. But for many of us here, these words ought to be great assurance. Lord, may that be the case. May we, as D.L. Moody, see the, the sun shine brighter, that the birds sing sweeter, because we are knowing the new life and peace today that your Son has brought and the Spirit demonstrates to us in our hearts. Lord, it is a wonderful life to know you. With great purpose we can live tomorrow. We can go to work tomorrow. But that bears very small kind of significance in comparison to all that is to come. So help us to be people that look ahead as well as enjoy now. To look ahead to all the glory that the Spirit points us to in each of our hearts. May we, as we knew life was monochrome before, may we see now that life is gloriously polychrome in Christ. Amen.